Stay hungry, stay foolish. Flex is a manifesto for living and working on your terms. It means looking at the established, rigid ways of doing things and asking, is this really working for me? If the answer to that question is no, then this book is for you. When we learn how to flex, we gain a superpower that allows us to challenge what is holding us back and reinvent the rules for a smarter, happier life. Because things are changing for women across the globe, we are getting married and having children later, if at all. Dual-income families have replaced the traditional template of a man as a breadwinner and a woman as a homemaker. Technology allows us to work differently and understand ourselves better, but the old systems still persist. We're continually bashing up against inflexible structures that were built by and for men. We are trying to do everything and following a rule book that we didn't write. We welcome the author of this fabulous book, Flex, Annie Auerbach. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Annie, I absolutely love the book and I, I spoke there as we and, you know, I tried to wear a pin that always reflects the, each individual episode. And today I'm wearing yin and yang because I really felt that this book gave me empathy for for the female brain, the female life, how the workplace was, etc. And in, in doing that, it made me more integrated as a result. And I think that's really, really important. And we were talking off air about how so many men commented on these aha moments or these light bulb moments as they read the book. Before we get into it, I'd love if you'd share those experiences that you had. Thank you so much. Well, so I, the reason why um, I look at it for, through a female lens to begin with is because looking back at the history of flexible working, it's often women, often mums who have been the pioneers, who have been chipping away at the old systems and structures and trying to make things work because, as you so brilliantly talked about in the introduction, so many of the systems that we work and live through have been seen through a male lens and created by and for men. Um, but having said that, my 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 strong feeling um, and belief is is flex is an ideology that's come of age and is there for all of us, whether we're young or older, men or women, um, whether we're starting out in our careers and just on our learning journeys, or whether we want to transition into a slower pace of life. All of this, um, all of the ways that we'll discuss around flexible working and living can benefit us as a society. Um, and it feels really brilliant to feel that we're doing it as allies, shoulder to shoulder, as you say, it's um, it's something that we can all benefit together. Yeah, and, and it's so important, again, for innovation and neurodiversity. One of the things we talk about often on the show is neurodiversity, and that's harnessing the minds of everybody. And we're going to dig deeper into that. But you rightly recognize right at the start of the book, when we prioritize the wrong things like long working hours over friendships, exams over mental agility, climbing the established career ladder over cutting our own paths, we diminish and inhibit ourselves and our possibilities. So I sort of feel that so much of this stuff has been handed down wisdom that we've internalized and believe that that's just the way things should be. But we're in a plastic moment at the moment. Um, the pandemic has shown us that things are possible that we never thought would be possible. So many businesses that I've been talking to Flex about said, absolutely, it couldn't happen in my industry for this, this and this reason. And now 
on a dime, we're pivoting towards um, remote working, working from anywhere, all these different types of models are flourishing. Um, so it feels like this plastic moment is one of change, possibility, let's challenge what didn't work and shed stuff that was holding us back and, and reinvent. And just to give our audience a bit of understanding about the book, because across the five chapters of the book, and it's, it's, it's a short read written for the times that we're in as well. So everybody's everybody's busy, everybody is is stressed. And you write it for that world as well. And, and I thought that was really interesting to add. But you write it through five lenses. The first is work, obviously, so flexible work. But then you go further and you talk about flexible minds, homes, bodies, and indeed our futures. So let's jump into it and begin as you do in the book with let's flex the mind. Here you dig into the key ingredients for creativity and explore how our environments have conspired against us to make us inflexible. Thank you for explaining um, those different chapters. I, I wanted to start by saying that we tend to shortcut towards flex and work. And my aim for all of this is to have a holistic vision of what we're living through in our lives. And of course, our lives aren't, you know, um, as small as the four corners of our offices or indeed the four corners of our Zoom screens. We're messy human beings with lives that are outside um, outside the, the workplace. And we need to think about that. And we need to think about it in a holistic way. So I, I started with flex in the mind. Um, and the reason being is because we know that one of the key skills for the future um, will be creativity, uh, to be able to think out of the box, to be, think, be able to think innovatively, come up with new solutions to age-old problems. However, um, life is conspiring to make us less creative and to um, kind of stick us into smaller boxes and echo chambers. Um, I started by thinking about, well, what actually is creativity? Because for me, thinking about creativity is coming up with something brand new that no one had ever thought about. That feels incredibly daunting to me. Um, and I didn't really know where to start with that as an idea. But actually, thinking about creativity is taking two different pieces of knowledge or ideas or frames of reference that hadn't been put together before. That gives a spark of something fresh and gives us a whole new fresh perspective. Um, and one of the um, stories that uh, we talked about, or I talked about in the first chapter was about Alfred Russell Wallace and Charles Darwin, because they um, made their um, theories of evolutions around about the same time. Um, but did it quite independently of one another. And why did that happen? Um, and when you dig into it, there's certain things that they both did. Um, so both traveled extensively, Darwin around the world in HMS Beagle, Wallace um, traveled to the Amazon and also the Malay Archipelago. Um, and all the time what they're doing is they're observing really unfamiliar and different things, whether it be plant species, animal species, the terrain, you know, constantly they're looking at things that they've never seen before. And weirdly and interestingly, both read an essay at the same time as well. Um, they read Malthus's essay on the principle of population and somehow reading about overpopulation as well as seeing all this unfamiliar stuff through travel sparked thoughts about evolution through natural selection in two different people at the same time. And this was something super interesting because it was the connection 
of seemingly unconnected ideas that created innovation. Yeah, and I love this because you you say that cross-connection may be the actual key to creativity. And I was telling you before we came on air that one of my practices is each week I write an article and it's half inspired by the guest and then half inspired by something totally unrelated like and, and create a metaphor from that. And in a way, what I've been doing for years is training myself for this cross connection. But you talk about Arthur Kussler in his book, The Act of Creation, and he talks about something called bisociation. And you say we've become quite poor at this because we don't actually have the bandwidth. And this is an important aspect of your work because you aim to give us time back and to work to our maximum ability in order for us to be able to maximum maximize our cognitive flexibility. Yeah, and I love this because you, you say that cross connection may be the actual key to creativity. And I was telling you before we came on air that one of my practices is each week I write a, an article and it's half inspired by the guest and then half inspired by something totally unrelated, like and, and create a metaphor from that. And in a way, what I've been doing for years is training myself for this cross connection. But you talk about Arthur Kussler in his book, The Act of Creation, and he talks about something called bisociation. And you say we've become quite poor at this because we don't actually have the bandwidth. And this is an important aspect of your work because you aim to give us time back and to work to our maximum ability in order for us to be able to maximum maximize our cognitive flexibility. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Kersler calls this um, idea of, of smashing two different frames of reference together. He calls it bisociation. Um, and it, funnily enough, it, it happens in jokes, right? So when we tell a joke, um, uh, we, we often put together two unexpected things. The term, the, the sort of Greek term is called paraprosdokian, which is the Greek for against expectation. Um, so there's various different jokes. Groucho Marx has a typical joke of, I had a perfectly lovely evening, but this wasn't it. And it's kind of like a dad joke, right? It's sort of, <laughs> you know, you're, you're on one route and then you're pulled back. Um, but and, and that, in a way, taking these two different frames of reference and putting them together, as you say, is a really interesting spark for innovation. But um, because of social media, because of algorithmic culture, we're being forced into echo chambers where we're listening to a same version of ourself again and again whether that be the kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where you end up watching something on Netflix and then, you know, you get recommended something very similar back because it gets to know your taste. Or Amazon, you buy a book and then here are other people bought this book, read these things. So you end up with quite a narrow um, set of cultural references. And if we're seeing by association is quite broad and random and sporadic, where are we getting that from? We have to deliberately intervene in ourselves to try and escape that narrowness and that kind of echoing monoculture. You jump then to workflex. So you, you tee us up in a way, you give us the lens of mindflex, and then you go into workflex. And you tell us about the time you reached the holy grail three days per week. You were like, yes, after maternal leave. And you thought it was fantastic, but it was far from it. And I'll share some examples because you give some examples of stuff that happened. And I'm sure this will resonate with our audience who have been in the same place as you were. 
when you left work bang on time, you'd feel your colleagues raised eyebrows and disapproval that would haunt you all the way to the tube station. When you arrived sweating, frazzled and tense to take over from the nanny and at the battleground that was the toddler's bath time, you were stressed out of your head. When you sat on the loo seat and mindlessly chugged in a 10 minute Instagram fix for your job, all these things come together. And we all have our versions of those. And so do, do, do men as well. We sneak in a bit of work, maybe on the loo seat, as you mentioned there as well. And it's wrong. This is very wrong of us. It is. It's, it's kind of, it feels such a own goal. You know, you've done the hard work, you've done the negotiation, you've managed to, to get the flexible work, but you feel so painfully grateful and guilty at the same time that you almost erode all of those beautiful boundaries that you've managed to negotiate and build into your life. And I remember a particularly poignant thing was, um, so I was working a three-day week and I'd be with my daughter. My husband was also working a, a shorter week so he could look after her. And I was at the playground um, at the sandpit and everyone who was there was on their phone tapping out emails because we were stressed and we were trying to hold down our jobs and and our kids were there and I read a newspaper article which said the number of playground injuries had gone up since the introduction of the iPhone it's just like oh my goodness what's going on here and it's that it's this kind of feeling of 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 guilt and you know the the notion of flexism that exists in the workplace which is that once you've been granted flexible work there's prejudice within the business against it so you're considered less committed you're considered first out the door you're considered you know going onto the mummy track or or the daddy track if you've managed to um uh take flexible working as as a new father you know that feels incredibly difficult to break through it's a cultural change as well as simply getting the thing on paper so let's dive into a little bit more and that, and then I'll, I'll expand a little bit on on flexible work because many people will love to hear your insights on this which are fantastic you say getting flexible time like you did is just the start because then we have to make it work for us and you draw inspiration here going right back to where many thoughts began which was the time of Galileo, and you call this coffee breaks and synchronized time. Yeah, I thought, I love a little story. And there's something, when you're thinking about time, um, time seems massively important, our concept of time and protecting our time when we think about flexibility. Flexibility can seem sort of soft and pliable, and definitely during the pandemic, time's oozed, oozed out, hasn't it? And we've sort of work and leisure and home is all blended together. So I wanted to think precisely about time. And if you zoom back to 1583, Galileo is um, a young student and he's sat in the Duomo di Pizzo and he's looking up, he's, it's a mass, he's probably bored, he's looking up at, distracted by the swinging of a pendulum clock. And this inspires him uh, to invent, sorry, he's looking at the, a swinging lamp and this inspires him to invent the pendulum clock. And what the pendulum clock does is gives us synchronized time. So we're all on the same time schedule. Before, you know, um, it, there was lots of kind of um, merging around time, but this allowed us to all be on the same page. And then if you go forward a little bit, that almost ends up 
1817, Robert Owen is the Welsh social reformer. And he's looking at the way that we're working in factories. And he's actually saying what we need now is eight hours labor, eight hours recreation and eight hours rest. In other words, putting us all on this kind of synchronized um, schedule that allows us to have the right balance in life. It's interesting because I, I, I thought about that a lot, actually, that particular story and that so time is essentially a man-made creation. So we, we humankind made time, I came up with the concept of it. Because I was mentioning to you in my own book, I draw on a lot of a lot of stories as well and analogies like you did on history and nature, etc. But one of the things I found really interesting is that some tribes still don't have that time. So the Intuits, for example, or in, in Eastern cultures, the idea of time is cyclical rather than linear. And here in in the West, we tend to think of, you know, even life as you're born, you know, you go to school, a bunch of stuff happens in the middle and you die. Instead of actually the idea that there's constant cycles. And I'm probably skipping ahead a little bit here to the end where if you if you have that concept of time as cyclical, plus you ignore in a way as much as you can, this common denominator of what time is, and you work to yourself and your bodily rhythms, etc, you can actually be way more at peace with the world. And also, if for example, you work in a gig economy, or if you move from role to role, you have job mobility, or you've left a job and you want to reinvent yourself, the cyclical element of time means that that last thing wasn't a failure, or it wasn't over, it wasn't final. I have some value in what happened there to me there. And this happens for a life experience as well. You you gather assets from the ashes where you can go on and bring them into your next part of your life. Oh, I think that's a really beautiful interpretation. And I, I really like it. Um, it. Of course, women's bodies clocks are, are cyclical. Um, and, and, and that's, that's a rhythm that's, that's, um, that's kind of very, um, at peace with us um, and the idea as well that you're not fixed into a linear vision of what life and success is so as you say you start off life with education that education then is paid out over a lifetime as you as you climb the career ladder or you, you settle down and then and then you and then you transition to a time of leisure where you retire that, that, that simply doesn't mirror the way people are living life at the moment as you say the gig economy or, or much more change of jobs and pivots as we evolve and as technology changes and we need to reskill and as we're working longer life you know longer working lives as well so thinking in terms of transitions and cycles um, feels actually a healthier way to have a more sustainable life and career really yeah and and i i want to dive in a bit because i'll come back to uh the menstrual cycle as well it's really important aspect here and for the men listening who don't want to listen to this do because you do a, a fabulous job of giving us empathy for what's happening and you talk here next about presenteeism and you say the big irony about bums on seats is that these long-suffering bums are proving to be very unproductive. Working longer hours doesn't always translate into more productivity. And in fact, you cite a study in France, the average French worker produces more by the end of a Thursday than their UK equivalent does in a full week. This is really important and something that employers need to get their head around. Yeah, 
Exactly, because we've had an assumption that long working hours denotes commitment, denotes productivity, efficiency, and it's simply not true. Um, in fact, the problem is one of burnout. So even prior to the pandemic, um, the World Health Organization had identified burnout as one of the, one of the biggest issues in workplace um, health. So um, actually what we really need to do is, is uncouple productivity from success. Um, and, you know, there's so many cliches about the way that the French work, you know, oh, they take really long lunches and oh, they take the summer off. But yes, that, yet their productivity is higher um, than UK, um, than the UK productivity. So I really think that there's something that um, we need to talk about, which is, which is trust, because I believe that long working hours, presenteeism, surveillance culture is all linked to a lack of trust. And we need to create new models of trust, which are not built on the hours that you put in, but rather on the outcome and the impact of what you do. So it's outcome based. I, I, I think that's so important. But again, employers then need to actually put the work in to, to, to come up with what the outcome might be. So it, it requires a total recalibration of the workplace. And I wanted to mention something here because I've done this. And I when I read it, I had a little bit of shame about this where one you, you say about leaving on time. So there was there's sometimes a, a stigma about that about leaving on time. The other thing, though, is a thing you call leaveism. And this is where people don't take their holidays. And this is massive in the West. But a lot of people and, and indeed the East now, a lot of people aren't taking their holidays. One of the dreads for people, even when they're on holidays is I'll just check my email to get rid of a few so I don't have to come back to this massive full inbox. This is a very important part that you talk about. Exactly. So there's a feeling that you need to be digitally present, even though you're not physically present, um, which means you never fully untether. Um, and interestingly, in Europe, they're creating um, laws which allow you to disconnect at the end of the day. Um, and you're not constantly tethered to your device. And it's important because rest and recuperation, um, we've already talked about burnout, but rest and recuperation important if we wheel back to creativity as well. Um, there's a really interesting study which shows that one in five founders of startups got their idea for their business whilst they were on vacation. And so if you don't stop and pause and rest and allow ideas to percolate, um, if you're constantly in, in churn mode, um, it's very, very hard to come up with something fresh. Um, it, my business, Starling, I run a trends agency called Starling. We take the summers off. Um, and that was a really um, kind of nerve-wracking decision for a startup because, you know, you clearly want to be there for your clients and you want to be able to, um, to, to, to be there and to be visible all the time. However, if your product is fresh thinking and you never stop, you're going to be stale. And so it's something that we, we, we found that was super important to us. Then you talk about another cohort, which is called the sandwich generation that many of our audience may not have heard of. I'd love if you'd expand on this one. The sandwich generation is really my generation. It's um, people that are looking after kids and elderly parents at the same time. Um, so we're trying to 
work um, and, um, and we're also pulled in these two different caring directions. Um, the burden of care is often on women's shoulders and the pandemic has shown that, that actually um, as much as the progress in the workplace prior to the pandemic seemed to be positive, there's been a huge um, hemorrhage of women from the workplace because of caring responsibilities, looking after children when the when the schools and um, childcare was shut, um, looking after elderly relatives. So feeling pulled in different directions and having a flexible schedule, just allowing you the breathing space to be able to do both, to be able to do the school run, to be able to pick up the milk for your mum or to sit with her when, when she's feeling lonely or take her to the doctor's appointment. These are small tweaks in schedules, which actually are about humanity. <laughs> Um, but I don't want it all to be on women's shoulders. And, and, um, and I think there's social change, which needs to happen around that too. I found that really interesting. And I wanted to dive into that a bit because I actually spoke to my wife about this, that, and it happened actually while I was reading her book, which was interesting. She said, she rang her brother and I was like, is everything all right with him? And she goes, I just felt I hadn't talked to him in a while. And, you know, he's abroad. So I just thought I'd check in with him. And I was kind of going, I thought of your book as like, on. I would never think of doing that. And it's not, you know, I, I just don't have that in me. But then you mentioned what you call the emotional burden, that that often lies with women. And the excuse I would often make to myself is that a man's brain has evolved differently than a woman's brain. And the, the woman, you know, and, and this is in some research where it's like the man's brain has been designed to go and hunt or gather while the woman's brain has been evolved to mind the tribe and the future of the tribe and the tribe gets on, etc. So there's a little inkling of that still in, in, in us, but it's not the excuse. And I actually questioned my excuse there and went, yeah, but it has to change somewhere. And that both takes a structural change in the brain, but also a cultural change and a societal change. It does. Um, and I think... You know, we've been socialized from an early age. Little girls have been socialized to um, to check that people are okay. I, I think I, I use a phrase in the book, I think, which is about kind of psychic antenna constantly quivering. You know, like, is, is, does everyone have enough food? Is it, you know, is my brother okay? I haven't got a, you know, this one's going through a divorce. I should pick up the phone, da 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 da. And it's this ticker tape. Of, and, the, and there's practical things in there as well, which are chores and housework and um, you know, something's broken or insurance or all of these things. But there's also this emotional ticker tape, which has been socialized into us as women um, to constantly be alert. And it's really interesting because it impacts flow. So the concept of, of, of flow, when you can get into deep work, um, it's been shown during the pandemic that women are interrupted much more in their work than men have been. Um, and geographically in the house, when everybody who is able to has been working from home, men tend to have had spaces which are more closed off and women tend to be in the open plan kitchen where their kids are doing the thing and they might need something printed out and da-da-da-da. So you can automatically see that the... Um, that, 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 that men have more protected time and space than women, as well as this, this emotional load thing. And it's really tricky to unpick. 
And I wanted to address it in a chapter called Flex in the Home, which dug deep into that because I just don't feel like we'll ever get flexibility of work unless we have it at home as well. Yeah, and it raises a really important thing because a thought that might come up would be, well, we need to prioritize whoever the larger breadwinner is. But you actually say that's not the case. Oftentimes when the woman is the bigger breadwinner or bread or earner, that the man will actually become more complacent in the home place. I was surprised by that as well. Maybe I wasn't. But <laughs> there's, a study, <laughs> there's a study which showed that you know, um, I think that we're also there's a there's a there's a cultural discourse which we've all internalized and which is um, if you are at the point of starting a family and you're thinking about childcare and costs, um, there's a point at which a calculation is done, which is the woman's income. Is it um, does it equate to childcare costs? Is it a bit more? Is it a bit less? And there's something that happens there, which then means that she might say something like, it doesn't make financial sense. I'm going to give up my job. Da, da, da. Now, I really challenge that because children are household income. So a, a household cost, as well as the emotional joy that they bring, obviously. But they're a household cost. So it, it's, it should be calculated out of a bucket of both incomes. And we should also see it as, you know, the cost of women coming out of the workplace at that point. It's not just that, it's also all her future earnings. And it's the opportunity cost of not being in the workplace. So it's a really tricky thing just to do it on, e on, on economics and numbers. And we need to think quite carefully about that. Um, because I think it, it then gets in a situation where it's very hard for women to re-enter the workplace and to return after after having children. So those cultural assumptions to do with money are, are something that need to be unpicked as well. I wanted to just share a, a brilliant excerpt that really jumped out to me and, and spoke to me and also I had massive empathy for, and it goes as follows. The biggest worry people have about working flexibly is that they will be perceived to be less dedicated. You share here how one of your friends told you about a recent job interview, she explained to her potential employer, she would like to work one day from home because she lived a 90 minute commute away so she could pick up the kids from school and work extra during the time she would save on the commute. But they turned her down. And this is where you, you emphasize trust. But I, I wanted also add on to this that We've seen a lot of this during the pandemic where, you know, there's a there's a saying called any turkey can fly in a storm. So anybody can say they're a great leader when the the business environment's good, et cetera, et cetera. But when it comes to moments, crunch moments like the pandemic, where maybe the business is under a bit more stress, micromanagement was a, had a huge uptick where people were being watched. It's like, am I getting value from money from these people because they're working from home? I'd love your thoughts on that. The big um, pushback on businesses prior to the pandemic was would be the worry that you would shirk from home, right? So when we're working from home, we're not working at all. We're watching television or, you know, we're, we're taking a dog for a walk or whatever. Now, that isn't the case. And actually, the issue has been when... Um, men and women have been working longer working hours when they've been working home. So the average workday has gone up across Europe by about 48 minutes, um, a 13% increase in meetings during the day. Um, our workload has got bigger. 
So this huge psychological worry, which is that working from home would mean that people don't work, is, is simply not true. But because we have old school models of trust, whereby trust is equated to presenteeism and long working hours, um, there's been this uptick, as you say, in digital surveillance. So um, uh, technological technological solutions which show if I've been inactive at my keyboard away from my desk not replying to slack messages etc etc and all of this is really insidious because you know if you don't trust somebody they shouldn't be on your team they shouldn't be working for for you what we need to do is in a situation where people are working more remotely or um, in a more distributed workforce, we need to be very clear about what we want people to do and what the tasks are and what the timeline is and what the outcomes are. And actually, we're not trained for that. We're more trained to sit there and watch people and then you know bump into them and say, hey, have you done the thing? And when's the thing happening? And so it actually requires a different type of communication and planning that hasn't been there. But if people are given uh, a set of instructions that make sense, are clear, are communicated in a way where we're all working forward to the same thing, we all have the same purpose in mind, then trust them, let them get on with it and do it in the best way possible. And all the evidence, all the research shows that it will happen and people will thrive. I wanted to jump to something about home life because you, you do you dedicated a whole chapter to the home life as well. And this is something that we all feel, whether it be a man or a woman, doesn't matter. And you say the tug of home life can be intense at times, while at other times it can be imperceptible. Shutting the front door when you leave for work can sometimes feel like an escape, but sometimes it feels like an abandonment. And we've all felt that. I think it's, you know, we're not machines. Life delivers curveballs to us at any given time. Um, sometimes things are going really well and actually you know we're straight out the door and um we're inspired by what we're doing or we're excited by what we're doing and we don't give home a second thought but sometimes home needs our attention um I talk about Anne-Marie Slaughter in the book um and uh she's working for the Obama administration and her team was going through some issues and wasn't working and and she was at a reception with you know the top people in politics in America and her mind kept on tugging back to her teenager I felt that I'm sure all of us have felt that when something's not quite right at home and the tragedy is when we feel that means we have to leave because we simply can't manage it because there's so little flexibility uh, in our current job that we feel that we just that it can't work and we're forced out. Whereas a conversation about humanity and the fact that at this particular moment in time, this is happening, it won't always be the case. This too will pass. And, you know, there'll be another, th- another time when we're thriving and, and things are easy peasy. But can we have flex in this moment? And I think we just need to acknowledge that life changes, transitions happen. Um, sometimes things are smooth, sometimes things are jacket. And why shouldn't, why should we just have this linear vision like you described before? Why shouldn't we have ebb and flow? Yeah, and we'll come back to that when we talk about uh, bloody time, <laughs> when we come yeah. back to that one. <laughs> but before we do, you, you give some 
amazing examples of flexible working and some I hadn't heard of. And I'd love you to share these because you talk about job sharing all the way to flex banking. Yes. So, um, so I think that um, for ages, we shortcut it to part-time work and it was called part-time. Even the name part-time sounds like you know, you're not committed. <laughs> and then we shortcut it during the pandemic to working from home. But flex is not about either of those. There's a whole plethora of different manifestations of what flex could look like. So job sharing, um, which most people will be familiar with, but two people share the work and pay of a single full-time job. Flexi hours, an employee works a set amount of core hours from the office. For example, 10 to three might be their core hours. And then they work flexi hours from home around caring responsibilities, a school run, et cetera. Location flex, we already know, working from anywhere. One-off flex, I mean, that's what we were just talking about, wasn't it? Like life can happen, let's not deny it. So instead of causing crises in people's life, let's allow them flex when they need it. Um, flex banking, you work a four-day week, but get paid for a 4.5-day week. And that 0.5 is banked. So when the business needs you, because don't forget that flex can happen at the business end as well as at the individual worker end. So if the business is going through um, something which needs all hands on deck, then they can give you notice and book you in. Um, compressed hours, working the equivalent of full-time hours, but squashing it maybe into um, four days instead of five. And phased retirement. Um, older workers can reduce their hours gradually and work part-time before transitioning to full-time retirement. Or indeed, because we're seeing such an uptick in entrepreneurialism of older people, um, they might want to phase out of salaried work into starting something new. Yeah, I loved the, the phased retirement one. It's so clever. Even to to for somebody to become more used to, accustomed to being at home more often, because if you think about that, you know, if there's one or other of the couple at home all the time, and all of a sudden somebody's sitting on top of them, like we've experienced during the pandemic, that can be feel invasive for people at home. So phasing in the retirement gives them an example of I've one foot in, but I'm also exploring what I'm going to do. So I'm not I'm not sitting on the couch all day. Totally. I mean, my dad is 83, and he's still working. And I just don't think he can face the thought of retirement. And partly because partly because we haven't as a society given much status to hobbies they sound frivolous they sound sort of like you know stuff around the edges but actually if you think about hobbies as passions and the things we care about and when you retire you can transition towards doing something that you care deeply about for leisure and if we haven't given time to that and energy for that and society hasn't cared about it, when we retire, we're like, oh, my God, where's my identity? What am I doing next? And it can be a quite frightening moment, I think. Yeah, and you reminded me there of something that so much and it happens in innovation as well. It happens in organizations where we talk a lot about psychological safety, the the lack, you know, the the absence of fear of speaking up or calling something out or even suggesting an idea. And that made me think of how that happens on in society when it comes to, for example, role swapping. So, for example, I say I want to stay at home and raise the kids, and often what happens there is then society judges 
one or the other of the couples for their role choice. And this is a huge problem as well, because this is where the societal shift needs to happen. It does. So I spoke to a lawyer um, in my book who um, they went for a transition through a transition. They've got four kids and um, her partner decided to stay at home. And that was cool for them. They had to go through transitions in their own life because she had to relinquish holes of stuff that she wanted or, or had in the past controlled and just said, well, it's going to happen that way. I can't get involved because this is a choice we've made. But also the people around them found it very hard to adjust. So if they wanted to arrange a play date, they'd be texting her and she's in court. She's like, text the dad, you know, and, and that the, the shift around all of that is really important because it's not just you making the change. It's the world recognizing your change and not holding it against you. There's a lot of implicit and, and invisible judgment there. And it's like the, you know, I, I actually thought of the idea of when you leave early, for example, or you leave bang on time. And it's the, it, like thoughts are energy and you can feel that energy. And it's almost you can see the thought bubbles coming out of people's heads. So to kind of going, I wonder, did he lose his job? I wonder all these things that are happening. And then that reflects badly on, on the person who's making that decision as well. And this is something that that I really thought was important to try and change. And, and your book has done that, hopefully. Well, this is the thing is that I actually just think it needs a rebrand because, you know, part time working doesn't sound cool. I think flex does sound cool you know when you type flex into your phone the strong arm emoji <laughs> and you know it's it's a creative rebellious um innovative way to live your life you're looking within you're caring deeply about yourself and your loved ones and you're creating a template from scratch that can work from you and can work for your business or the business you work for. So that for me is profoundly visionary. And instead of seeing these people as, you know, out of sight, out of mind, these are the people who are naturally equipped with kind of visionary thinking. So, you know, I think we need to flip the whole thing. We need to give it status within the business. So that's why I talk about, um, flexible role models and, you know, making flex sexy within the business, you know, talking about um, people who are flexing with elegance and who are doing it brilliantly and showing their trajectories and, and their career development, um, leaving loudly for the bosses as well. And it's, it's important then as well for us as parents or mentors or coaches or uncles or aunts to be these strong role models. You mentioned author James Baldwin and how he said, children have never been good at listening to their elders, but they have never failed to imitate them. And that's something that's always on my mind. I have two boys and I'm always on my, it's always on my mind to d demonstrate like that I'm doing the housework and that there's, that's like not even mentioning that that's a thing. Because I think if I was to even kind of go, look, daddy's, you know, make a thing of it then it becomes a thing and they, they might question it. So they just see me do it. And then I have it, you know, they get pocket money for doing those tasks, some of those tasks as well that they can do. And it's that passing on of cultural knowledge that becomes really important as well that I felt from your work. Exactly, exactly. So it's just normalizing, de-shaming, um, making it part of life so that everybody can be lighter and happier 
Um, because the outcome of all of it is not just everybody doing the, the crap. <laughs> it's that people, we're all freed up and we've all got mental energy to do the good stuff too, um, to be more present, to be um, more ambitious about our, more strategic with our time and energy. I saw a thing, Annie, on, on LinkedIn the other day, and it was a very senior leader, a guy who shared on LinkedIn that he had a heart attack. And it showed a picture of him in the hospital bed with the mask on. And underneath, he wrote, I had a heart attack. Here's what I thought when I had the heart attack. And it wasn't that his life flashed before him. And he went, oh, crap, what am I going to do about this task and work? How am I going to get the funding for that thing? And he had at the very end his family. Oh, uh, oh, crap, I hope my wife doesn't find me dead here, right? And he had a list of things. And then he went, after the reflection, here's my new list. And everything that was in his life went to the top that was important, his family, his wife, uh, his happiness, his health. And I thought about that. So few of us are lucky to get that warning shot, and it becomes in increasing and important. And this is why you dedicate a whole chapter to flex and the body. And you share, which is really interesting, the way you did for the different types of flexible work that are available, the different types of chronotypes. Because I often think that we work to try and shore up our weaknesses all the time instead of leaning into our strengths. Yes, exactly that. So, so chronotypes were interesting to me. Um, so very broadly, you could be a morning lark, which is, means you jump out of bed quite early in the morning. You, you know, you don't need your coffee to get going. You've got energy, um, but then you might have a slump uh, around three o'clock and you go to bed early at night. Or you might be a night owl. So um, that's reversed. You have a very slow start in the morning. You don't takes you a while to get going but then you have these peaks of productivity and um, energy later on in the evening and then the middle people broadly are, are hummingbirds and the nine to five is really fit for the hummingbirds and it doesn't really capitalize on anything that the larks and the owls bring to the picture and so um, even the notion of the commute you know all of that energy and imagination and, and synapses firing that the larks have is spent under someone's armpit in a sweaty train. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas if you allowed them, you just sort of they will come in early or indeed work early and then come in later, you would be capitalizing on their peak uh, rather than shoving them into this system in height. You know, you think about the community, I still, I'm still bewildered by it looking back that everybody at exactly the same time into these very dense, unhygienic, um, overcrowded situations in order which, which clash with the school run if you're a parent, um, in order to get us all into the same place at the same time for what? For us all to sit in with headphones, tapping away in silence. The whole thing seems absurd. And if you allow um, flexibility of your daily schedule with your chronotype, suddenly you will see that you're capturing all of this energy that would be shaved off at the edges. I, I found that right. So I, I had a, a career as a professional rugby player for a decade, and then I retired into the workplace. And it never made any sense to me why everybody took lunch at the same time and queued outside coffee shops, or then I worked later in a public organization, very archaic one. And everybody would go for lunch at the same time and spend half an hour queuing. And I was kind of going, why don't they just go an hour earlier? And then I, then I zoomed out after a while and I realized actually it was, it was the fear of judgment of others 
that why is he going off? Why does he think he's special? Or this is certainly what you've felt from people. But it just made total sense from a management of your time. And speaking of that, and building on what you talked about chronotypes, the next was absolutely brilliant for me. It was one of those things I talked about at the very start of the show that was an eye-opening, total lack of awareness. And you know, you you could empathize with with me as a man as well, that how would I know? And this is why I think your work is so important. And in particular, this chapter was so important, because you talk next about bloody time. And if we were to believe in empathy, it's essential for all of us to understand periods and menstrual cycles. Because you share some top line information here, Annie. And, you know, I, I mentioned in my notes, I'm constantly impressed by New Zealand Prime Minister Jacintha Hearn, and she recently brought out in New Zealand that menstrual products would be free for school children or for those who can't afford them, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. And then I read in your book that China and Japan have menstrual leave for people. It's a legal right, not that they all take it, but it's certainly there, and that's, a, that's progress. Completely, and it's such an ignored topic, um, and yet it's an absolute foundation of 50% of the population and the way that we live and the way that our our cycles, our time works. And so I wanted to focus on it because to be honest, I'd ignored it myself as well. So I'm Gen X um, and I was brought up in a generation where you don't really talk about it. You know, it, all the ads on telly were um, for sanitary products as though having a period was somehow not sanitary uh, or hygiene products. And, um, you know, people jumping off buildings and rollerblading. And I was like, this isn't, and blue liquid, rather, you know, there's no blood visible in any of this. So the whole thing, there's this sort of silence and shame. And um, the only thing we're going to talk about is the complete opposite of the experience you're having. In other words, rollerblading and jumping off a building. So, For me, the notion of actually listening to your body and understanding what's happening during a monthly cycle felt quite revolutionary. And I think younger women, I'm amazed by them and and the nuance in which they understand their bodies, their minds, their lives, their sleep patterns, all of this. Because this is something that I've had to learn and my generation, I think, is learning. But I spoke to a menstrual coach called Kate Shepherd-Cohen to help me understand menstrual cycles. And she, interestingly, divided up the average month into four seasons, spring, summer, autumn, winter. And in those seasons, different things are happening hormonally and different things are happening to your mind and your emotions as well. So winter is when you're actually having your period um, and you might feel um, you might feel achy and crampy and you might also feel um, introverted and like you don't want to see lots of people you might not by the way these are generalizations and everyone has an individual experience Um, but then you move into spring where um, your body's preparing to ovulate and you've got this really high learning capacity and you might be buzzing physically energized you know really alert really positive now if I was to look at my team and I was a manager, and I had half of my team in their spring, would I deploy them to do activities that are very consumer-facing, let's say if we're a consumer-facing business, or you know something that required really kind of tricky calculations or, um, or something very collaborative? Whereas 
if they're in their autumn and winter, would I perhaps have them on more admin stuff, back back office stuff? And might that help people to thrive and feel like they're on the front foot rather than kind of lying to themselves in the workplace and trying to trying to fit themselves into a into a um a jigsaw pattern that simply doesn't work for them. There was so much in this, like I I I mentioned about sport and players were managed for their energy as well as everything else and and I know you talk about Chelsea the the coach of the Chelsea women's football team and and I I'd love to share that because it makes so much sense to me to go understanding chronotypes is one thing but understanding energy flows is another so understanding how somebody when is the, when are they at their most energetic on a different cycle like on a monthly cycle becomes really important and I, and it all goes back to one thing for me, Annie, which is, we have moved from an industrial world where you were in a factory, and it made sense to have people there for eight hours, and you'd watch them, because they were they were outputting based on the time they were putting in. But in a knowledge economy, where everything's moving towards services, product services, and and entrepreneurialism, all those kind of things, and, and selling knowledge services, your work with Starling, for example, all that means that we need to maximize our cognitive abilities. And this is why this makes absolutely sense. Why would I put somebody through the torture of in their winter, bring them into the office, get them to write out a proposal when they're absolutely in bits, instead of going, okay, well, take your time off, Netflix and chill, the real sense of Netflix and chill, just chill out, drink whatever, eat chocolate, whatever makes you feel better. Because your body is in a different state. So therefore, your mind's going to be in a different state. It just absolutely makes no sense that we we still put people through this. I mean, that's, it's just music to my ears hearing you talk like that. But um, it, it, it's, it's true. And it would require just a little bit of a shift in understanding. Um, and you can imagine giving people the freedom to design templates for themselves, which really mean that they work at their very best. Uh, and you, you mentioned um, Emma Hayes, the coach of Chelsea Ladies. And so she studied the impact of menstrual cycles on players' reaction times, on their dexterity, their speed, their coordination, muscle maintenance, all of that kind of stuff. And it's very untouched, really. She says the subject is pushed away like a taboo, but it's really important. And if I had unlimited resources, I would hire someone to manage my players' menstrual cycles. Um, and you can imagine, actually, um, the most progressive businesses having menstrual coaches. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, you hear about Silicon Valley perks, which are all about beanbags and unlimited snacks and, you know, laundry and everything done for you. But this is an interesting perspective, which thinking about a menstrual coach to help you be able to design your working month. It's funny because, you know, she said about unlimited resources. We we had the, there's a brilliant author, um, Whitney Johnson, she's been on the show several times. And she she talks about managing the life cycles of people's careers as well. So if you think of the career as a as a cyclical journey, so an, an S curve, where you know, it starts off, it's kind of learning, then they get to a, a period of rapid growth, and then they get to a period of decline or stagnation. And she she talks about a HR leader 
managing that with the with the workforce now there's a lot of onus on the employee as well to do their work of that but but i i just imagine a world where imagine you had a a, a hr department or an lnd department that managed all these different cycles where the employees were forthcoming with like, okay, I'm in winter around these periods. And then, you know, and I'm sure there's some software that can do this quite easily. But imagine the harmony you would have from a, a constructed, you know, you're an orchestrator of that harmony. How are people's chronotypes? How are people's cycles? Whether are they spring or summer? Um, where is their energy strongest? Where Who comes in at 6am? Who leaves at 3 all these things, and you put them all into a different mixing bowl, and the working world will be a better place. And therefore, the world will be a better place because work and life are, are synonymous now for so many of us. I mean, exactly. This is a vision of the future, and it's an inclusive vision. So what you're describing is a workplace that makes space for everybody. You know, you talked about cycles, but, you, you know, neurodiversity, introverts, extroverts, ability, disability, um, all of that can be taken into consideration. And we know that more inclusive workplaces thrive and are better workplaces, more profitable workplaces even. Um, you know, we haven't even talked about from the business's perspective, you know, when we don't have a centralised HQ um, and we're paying rent on that, you know, you're freeing up capital and even businesses like HSBC, for example, are reducing their real estate um, by 40%, um, they're downsizing. And so, you know, there's a real sense that there's huge benefits to, to, to the innovation and the inclusion of the workforce, but also to the business. Yeah. And I usually finish on a, a quote, and I've picked one that I absolutely love. I just want to let our audience know, there's also a chapter on the future. So flexing into the future, the changing workforce, the change, the need for our constant development and constant learning, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. We're not going to go into that any because we cover a lot of that on the show. And I really wanted to lean in onto these pieces that are, were so essential for me. And while I'm uh, going to mention your quote, Will you have a thought about how you want to leave our audience today? Maybe some thought, parting thought that you want to leave them with. But before I even quote you here, where can people find out more about you, about Starling, etc.? Oh, thank you. Well, starlingstrategy.co.uk is our business where um, we look at cultural change um, and help brands like Nike and Unilever understand how, how things are changing. And then you can find me on Twitter, Annie Auerbach, and Instagram, Annie Auerbach. I was telling you, the, the serendipity of this, I wrote about murmurations a few weeks ago, and this is why it's called Starling. We deliberately called our business Starling, and um, Adam and I, we're, we're business partners and we love Starling Memorations, which I don't know if you've seen them, but if you have these beautiful formations of thousands of Starlings um, swooping above you, they're kind of awe-inspiring. But interestingly, what they are is they are reacting to threats and opportunities constantly. They're shape-shifting. Um, and it's a fantastic metaphor for how we need to be in the world at the moment, how brands need to be, um, but also how business and work needs to be this is a moment where we really can react to the prevailing winds and rather than be rigid and set in stone and force people back to a world which excluded so many of us you know think about the murmuration and how we can think about a more fluid visionary future we know that the world is changing fast rigidity in a world of change means something is going to break 
and that thing could be you. And think about it. Many of the jobs we were trained for in school won't exist in a decade. The more robotic our behavior, the more vulnerable we are to the robots that are taking our place. So flex it has to be for all of us. A movement built on creativity, bravery, anti-convention and innovation. When we learn to flex, we reinvent the rules for a new future. And it's one in which we all can thrive. I love that, Annie. And that's my parting word for today. How about you? How would you leave it? Thank you so much. I mean, the same really in that this is a moment that's ripe for change. Um, I've been tracking it for so long and there's been so much resistance and now the world is opening up and we can design work and life and success patterns which really include us all and allow us all to thrive. Author of Flex, Annie Auerbach, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.